We continue our series on the life of King David, a man after God's own heart, and this morning we're doing part 21. The title is The Return of the King, from 2 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 to 23. Now, the title might seem a little bit familiar to those who are fans of the Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, it is the, in, in the Lord of the Rings series, it is the last, the third and the last, uh, widely regarded, the, the last one, regarded as one of the greatest and most influential films that were ever made. But I think Tolkien, who was a Christian, borrowed the title from the Bible. So the fact that I'm borrowing from Tolkien is because he borrowed from the Bible. Now last week we looked at David's darkest moment. His own son Absalom has come back from exile after murdering his brother Amnon. But upon his return he cleverly wins the hearts of the people to the point where he is able to displace his own father from the top job. He leaves, so David leaves the city with his supporters. He has to flee. And as they leave the city, everyone is weeping, including David, as they, they cross the, they, they go down to the Kidron Valley and up on the Mount of Olives. It was a sorry sight. The great king, along with his faithful servants, forced to leave the great city. The future, the future now uncertain. All that David can do is place himself and his former kingdom, whatever his future holds, into, into God's hands. Meanwhile, Absalom is establishing himself in the city of Jerusalem. He makes himself comfortable by helping himself in the open with David's ten concubines who were left behind. He was making sure that he was inflicting maximum pain on his very own flesh and blood, his father. But that's not the end of it. With most of Israel backing him up now, and, and Judah, and even though his, 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 his father has, has left across the Jordan and, and gone towards the desert, he's left the city. Absalom cannot be assured of victory until he wipes out his dad and his supporters. His victory has to be complete. So he makes plans to go after his dad and his army. And while David trusted God to deliver him, this did not mean that David simply sat on his hands and uh, let go and let God. He strategically placed men that he trusted within the inner circle, within Absalom's inner circle, as, as, as a fifth column, as, as spies, who would then report back to David about what the plans are. This is a full-blown civil war. Nothing is fair. Everything goes. 
And David, aware of Absalom's plans, splits, prepares himself for battle by splitting his army into three groups under three generals. And they are Joab, Abishai and Etai. David, he's an older man now, but he still wants to lead the battle from the front. But his wise generals tell him, look David, mate, you're getting on a bit. We're going to have to put you at the back. Because if you as the king die, that's the end of That's the end of the kingdom. So we have to keep you safe. And with God's help, with God's help, David's men miraculously prevail. They win the war. But the battle takes a a heavy toll as as 20,000 men would die at the hands of their own fellow countrymen. And and not just the countrymen, but the terrain. It's all, it became an absolute mess. One of those who was killed was Absalom by Joab, despite the fact that David had, had clearly told them that please be gentle with my son Absalom. Now, much healing would be needed to, to bring back together this, this fractured kingdom. And if you read any, any part of history, is that as difficult as it is to win the war, many times it is much harder to win the peace. This, as, as we know, this is what happened, for example, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And likewise, cracks start to appear in, in this former United Kingdom. And, and there is a bit of animosity happening between the, the, the northern tribes, the, the ten northern tribes and the tribes of the south, which included the tribes of Judah. And obviously, after David and his son Absalom, the kingdom would split for good. Now let's get into our passage this morning after I've given you that, that background as to what we are at. If you want more details about all of that bit, you've got to read the previous chapters to fill yourself in. Now, in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 19, we have a dangerous morning, oh you. Joab was told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom and for the whole army, the victory that day was turning to mourning. Because on that day the troops heard it said the king is grieving for his son. And the men stole into that city that day as men still in, 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 in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. The great victory that day, suddenly, instead of a celebration, turned hollow 
for all the people. They started to feel bad because their king took the news of Absalom's death really, really badly. He was overcome with excessive grief. It, it, it was to the point that it was actually becoming dangerous because he was losing perspective. And this affected his, his loyal friends and supporters who, who felt ashamed, who felt actually bad that they won a great victory for him. Now there is also, we have to be mindful that there is a deeper dimension here to David's grief. There is a deeper dimension. Because God's word to David through Nathan were, the sword will not depart from your house forever. Remember those words. Sadly, it is David's own guilt and, and, and what he had done, his own sins, that inflames and compounds his grief. Nathan told him that his life will be spared, but he's now lost three sons. The first one was an infant. Then we have Amnon, and now we got Absalom. So David knew that his sin has, has been let loose. You know, his sin had set the sword loose on his own household and he felt the weight of his own sin because of God's judgment and this is why he cries just at the end of the previous chapter this is why he cries if only I had died instead of you and and he was shutting himself in he didn't want to be with the people he, he shut himself in and he was slipping into depression now God is not against feelings and he's not against emotions. He created us that way. However, feelings were not meant to be master over us. Uh, And we see that many times when someone is overcome in, in tragedy or sorrow, the problem is not what they, what they know. The problem is what they forget. They focus on what they lost and they don't seem to focus on what is around them, what is left behind. Many, many faithful men of God struggle with severe depression. One of these was actually Martin Luther. And as I mentioned earlier at the start of our service, um, today is known, is known as Reformation Sunday where we remember how God used him 500 years ago to reform the church. His act of actually standing up to to the Catholic Church, his act would affect him deeply, emotionally. He couldn't shake the notion, he couldn't shake the notion that the reforms that he advocated might destroy rather than revive the church. He felt that weight and he suffered sickness, unbelief and anxiety. It actually drove him to the brink of despair. 
But he overcame with God's grace and with the help of faithful friends. And he later wrote this, this poem. This is what he wrote. He said, Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, naught else is worth believing. In comes Joab, David's right-hand man, and gave him a stern wake-up call. He said, David, your excessive mourning is selfish. It isn't all about you. These loyal, sacrificial supporters of yours deserve to feel good about the victory and, 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 and you are making them feel terrible. You need to snap out of it. Now, we need to, to mention, we need to exercise some caution here. Firstly, please be careful when you're trying to use this strategy as it is not appropriate in all situations and can actually do more harm. Depression is a very complex, very, very complex condition. But God, we need to remember that God has the ultimate say. Secondly, while all tragedy points back to Adam's original sin, all the tragedy that David is going through, and all the tragedy that we might go through in our lives, the grief, the loss, the pain. While all of that, we have to suffer a lot of this stuff, it points back to the original sin of Adam. So don't assume that a person's trials, a person's, someone that you know, or even us, you know, that we're going through a difficult time, because of some big sins in our lives. This is the mistake that the disciples of Jesus, when they saw the, the blind man, they said, well, who sinned? Was it him or his parents, right? Don't, don't assume that because somebody's going through a difficult time that it's because of their personal sins. Having said that, having said all that, God used Joab to confront him with the truth that his actions were not only foolish, but in his excessive grief, he was also being selfish. Some perspective was needed here. There were 20,000 deaths in this civil war. Everybody would have lost somebody. The people would have lost sons and husbands and uncles. They were, they were all in mourning. But they did it for a cause, because they loved their king. But if the king did not appreciate their effort, their grief would soon turn to anger. Now, Joab's words might appear harsh, insensitive to a, a mourning father, but the rebuke worked because Joab cared enough to say it and David was wise enough to, to receive it. Even, the, even though he, he didn't feel like it, he had to get up and front up to the people and show some appreciation. 
and return their love. This is what the people needed to see as uh, to show them that their sacrifice was actually worth it. Now, those with leadership responsibilities, um, present company included, know that there are times when personal considerations must be set aside. This does not mean that family responsibilities should be ignored, but there is always a difficult balance that has to be maintained. Our next point, in verses 8 to 10, remorse setting in. Remorse setting in. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes, and throughout the tribes of Israel, all the people were arguing amongst themselves, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he has fled the country to escape from Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? David survived Absalom's attempted overthrow, but the kingdom was not yet restored to him. (coughs) Now they feel bad about having rejected David and followed Absalom because their chosen king is dead. They recall how David rescued them many times before from their enemies, including the Philistines. So a bit of remorse is is setting in. It looks like they backed the wrong horse, right? They have backed the young stallion when they should have stayed with the trusted old stayer. In Australia, it's horse raising season, so I have to include that. They see the, the misery and, 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 and the confusion that he brought. Now they're disputing, you know, who's going to, we have to bring him back. The very king that we kicked out, now we have to bring him back. I, I, look, I, I think it's rather sad that uh, many times we only decide to bring bring back King Jesus into our lives when all our other false kings have failed. Many times it is only after all our wonderful plans and, and ideas have come to nothing that we say, okay, okay, you can be Lord of my life again but only until I get out of trouble, all right? You see, we, we, we can't keep using God like a lifesaver or, or a parachute whenever we get into trouble. With God, it's a relationship or it's nothing. It's a full-time relationship. Let's recall the words of Etai the Gittite, who said to David in 2 Samuel 15, 21, I love these words. Wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. Isn't that great? 
You, you've got to have those words printed somewhere that says, wow, that, that, what, that'll be a wonderful motto for our lives. Wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. That is what a relationship with our Lord, a commitment to him looks like. And now we come to winning the peace in verses 11 to 14, winning the peace. And, and say to Amasa, are you not my flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you are not commander of my army for life in place of Joab. And so he won over the, 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 the men of Judah so that they were all of one mind. And they sent word to the king, return, you and all your men. Now there is a, a bit of jealousy and animosity rearing its, its ugly head between the tribes of the north and Judah. This is what we mentioned before. The rightful king has returned but there is no peace in the kingdom. If it persists, it will threaten the stability of the kingdom. One compromise was to demote his faithful general Joab, his right-hand man, and appoint Amasa, who had been Absalom's commander. So Absalom, the king who has been just been killed and deposed, and now... We got rid of him and now you're going to use his general? How does that work? Well, if you follow politics, this is a political appointment, isn't it? Happens all the time. To, to win the peace. But you see, even through this whole process, even through it all, if God wasn't in it, the kingdom would have self-destructed. And David would not force himself on Israel. He would only come back if the tribes who rejected him agreed to bring him back as king. He was going to re-establish his authority, not by wielding the sword or wielding the axe, but by accepting the scepter. His return to sovereignty was decided by the voluntary submission of his kinsmen. We need to also remember that Jesus is already Lord of our lives. We do not make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. You got that? Jesus is Lord. The only way to respond to Jesus' lordship is submission. We vacate our throne and say, Lord, this is your throne. Right? Submission, that's the response to Jesus' lordship, to his kingship. Now in verse 15, the journey back. And then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. Now there's a little bit of history attached to Gilgal. It was the first resting place of the Israelites when they entered the promised land in the days of Joshua. So it was the, the, the place where Israel's life in the land of God first began. So it was an appropriate place for a new beginning. 
This is why it mentions Gilgal. And the, the, the journey, as, as David fled from Jerusalem, his journey back pretty much followed the steps that he took going out. He's taken the same steps coming back in. And as he came back, he had to build bridges. Not so much bridges to cross the, the Jordan, but relational bridges. And this is where David came into his own, because he was... He was known as a man of the people. And his diplomatic touch would be very well used. And as he came, as the king came towards Jerusalem, the people started to come out and to escort him back across the river. What a change, right? On one moment, you know, one moment they're all kicking you out and the next moment... They're welcoming you back in. Rejected by a nation, hunted by his son, now he comes back escorted by thousands of enthusiastic supporters. Now we look at mercy displayed in verses 18 to 23. When Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong in the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my Lord the king. And then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, Shouldn't Shemai be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. And David replied, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that, that today I'm king on Israel? So the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the, promise, the king promised him on oath. <clears throat> How things change. You're probably saying, what what, what is the background to all of this, this, this story here? Well, in chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, we, we, we meet Shimei. Uh, as David was fleeing the city, remember, he's crying, he's mourning, everybody around him, it was, it was the lowest point. We spoke about that last week. So, in chapter 16, this fellow comes out. He was actually a, a relative of King Saul, he comes out and starts swearing and throwing rocks and all of this while David is fleeing. And this is what he said to him. He says, he says, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. Right? Nothing better than kicking a dog while he's down, right? There will always be those. Always be those who are happy to dance on your grave and kick you when you're down. Maybe you know what it's like. I hope you're not one of those who enjoys somebody else's misery and pile it on. So, as the way, in chapter 16, as, 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 as this guy was hurling abuse at, at King David, Abishai, one of his generals, suggested a solution to keep him quiet. He said, let's just lop his head off. Let's just chop it off, right? 
But David stopped him, saying, leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do it. Isn't that an insight, right? Wow. It, and I wonder, I wonder if the same thing happened to us. I wonder if sometimes God leaves some of the, those people that don't like us as, you know, as he places there, just to leave that stone in our shoes so that we don't feel too comfortable. Now, there's a turnaround, right? On the way back. Remember all the stuff that he said on the way out? Now, on the way back, he comes crawling to the king with the tail between his legs. Huh? And, and look, it's okay for us to feel suspicious of his motives. You'd be right. And this is why Abishai, again, suggests, you know, let's, you know how I told you a permanent solution? Let's do that again, right? Let's fix it for once and for all. But if David showed mercy before, when the guy was throwing rocks and, and yelling and screaming at him, if he showed mercy before, then he's definitely going to be showing mercy now. You know, we might offer a wry smile at Shimei and his antics, but, you know, but honestly, honestly, I look at Shimei and I said, maybe he's more like us than we'd like to admit. This is why Spurgeon uh, makes a point about how our king dealt with us. He said, and I quote, Perhaps you have been like Shimei, who cursed King David, and you are afraid that Jesus will never forgive you. But David forgave Shimei, and Jesus is ready to forgive you. He delights in mercy. Isn't that great? He delights in mercy. We need to remember that. And we need to remind that to people who, who say perhaps, look, I've done some horrible things in my life. How can God possibly forgive me? Well, he can and he does. As long as you repent and submit to him to his lordship. Now, I want to close with the return of our king. The return of our king. As we follow David's return as king to Jerusalem, we consider the promise of his glorious descendant, our king, Jesus Christ, when he promised to come again. And it's important to understand that Jesus' promise to return has already substantially, but not finally, been fulfilled. Let me explain. Firstly, Jesus promised to come again to his disciples, and he did come again to his disciples. This was on the third day after his death, um, just as he had promised. In John 2.22, After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus came to his disciples. Secondly, Jesus returned through the indwelling 
of the Holy Spirit. He said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is the return of the King to us. To, to every Christian believer. It is the presence of Jesus by his spirit in the lives of believers. And this is a cause for rejoicing for all of us. Jesus is in us. And thirdly, the return of the king in all his glory is still a future event. That's the big one. That's the big one. When Jesus ascended to heaven... The angels, what did the angels tell the disciples in Acts 1.11? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Let me conclude with this. If Jesus has kept his two promises of his return we can be certain that he's going to keep the third. Right? If we can trust him with the others, I'm pretty sure he's going to keep this last promise. And we await the return of our king. Amen.